planning and executing are very different parts of my brain. And if I have to go back and forth between them multiple times in a day, there's going to be 30 minutes between those where I have to be like, okay, now I actually have to execute. Oh no, now I have to plan. I have to get all these things into my head and load them up before I can do that. This framework really helps you separate that. It's You're like, okay, these days of the week are these meetings. I am planning. I am not executing. I am thinking about the future. And then this time I am doing things. I am executing. I am getting it done. And having those separate is for me personally, as someone with a lot of ADHD, is I could not do my job without it. Hey, this is the Data-Driven Marketer. I'm Adam. I'm Mark. I'm Cam. Welcome back for another hang in the data basement. Thanks for joining us. And special thanks to our guest this week, Cam Fortin, who is another uh, a mothership guest, a member of the team over here, VP of Product for Audience Solutions, which I think is technically where we fall also right now. So I'm told. At least in terms of who approves my, my payments and stuff. You are also the largest influencer I think we have on the team. We have like 15,000 Instagram followers. Not quite, but it's not for B2B, you know? It's, it's yeah, nothing just to do for, with the, yeah, the rocks, subject matter. So. <laughs> but it's important to have hobbies, right? We got to be well-rounded. Rock talk. Hashtag rock talk. So yeah, I'll throw to you from here for you know, like a quick intro of kind of how you ended up at NetWise with us and then, and then how you've landed where you are. One thing we always talk about in, in product is it's, there's not a whole, a real standard way to, to get there. Everybody has their own kind of path. So it's always fun to, to hear how people got into it. So for myself, after college, I was in a consulting firm for a couple years. And that's where I learned how to, all my analysis chops and how to frame a, a project. And actually, you know, ideas are fine, but execution is <laughs> more important. So that's where I learned a lot of those skills. Then I went over to wine.com, really fun customer-facing um, website where you can actually buy wine and have it shipped to your house and did a lot of analytics there and paid search and then eventually transitioned over into taking over the product function there. And it was very organic in that I, in part of um, trying to you know, um, do my analysis that I needed for various things, I just had to go talk to people in different departments and had a lot of questions, um, etc. And the, the lead engineer was like, you know what, this skill set of interrogating things and, and getting data and making decisions on that and cross you know, team communication, that's pretty much what product is. We don't have that. Would you like to do that? And I said, sounds interesting. <laughs> Let's give it a shot. And so that's how I fell into to product in general and absolutely have, have loved it and, and enjoy it ever since. So I was there for close to 10 years. And then I got a call from Brian Jones, the now CTO of the uh, joint ring-fenced organization that IYs that I think we're calling ourselves these days. But we were buddies and his company got acquired to basically be the in-house engineering team for um, NetWise Data that had historically outsourced their engineering efforts. So they wanted to hire them and they needed someone to, to wrangle them and put some process around things and to develop a, a product roadmap and you know do all those good things. And I thought it was a, a great opportunity to kind of use my skill set, but in a completely different arena. And then, you know, we, I was there for a bunch of years. It was great. And we got acquired. The part I forgot about that story is that Brian brought you in and you know Brian because of a bunch of friends that he and I share from like high school. Oh, yeah. So that's funny. I mean, it's pretty amazing that we went from <laughs> getting, you know, having a couple of beers a couple of times to, to realizing, oh, this is actually somebody that I could have like a, a lifeline, lifelong career with, right? So him and pal both, they stayed at my house 
um, before we before I even joined and stuff. So yeah, that was pretty fun. Awesome way to join. That's the funny. Company. One fun tidbit about Netwise: before we got acquired, there was not a single hire that didn't know somebody else in the company when they joined. It was probably the closest knit and best kept culture of any place I've ever been. It was pretty amazing. That was really the biggest selling point for me uh, when when Kerp brought me on. I mean, this is case in point. You know, I think I think I was the last, maybe or penultimate employee that was uh, that that fit that pattern. Uh, you know, before we got acquired. Um, so that feels really good. That was kind of the biggest thing when I when I first talked to Dwight. He was like, "Yeah, it's a big family. Everyone's come in from referral." And I thought, "Wow, that's really cool." I've only worked at one startup before in my CV, and uh, and that that was a pretty intimate shop too, but not 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 anything close to you know just the level of comfort and, and kind of closeness you have when there's when there's people that you've you know like you said crashed on their couch, had a beer with, yeah, talk shop uh, in a less less threatening setting than hey, we got to close deals, and then. And when that when the pressure does come, then you feel like you can trust these folks that are on your team. Absolutely. So when I first joined Netwise and started to get kind of you know uh, onboarded into the various teams and technologies and whatever, Brian, I think just hosted a meeting with like me, uh, you, and a couple of other people, and said, "These are your project management software people. They understand what you and I, me and Brian." talk about all the time in terms of there's a better way to work than how all the rest of the world does it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> um, so yeah, like, like we've worked together on different projects, but also you're the one I go to and I'm like, okay, what, how do we, what do we, what's happening over here where software hits this world of needing to make projects happen and product to come out and all that kind of stuff, because that methodology is eating the world. Mm-hmm. So increasingly marketing, looks like that running in, in sprints and scrum and that kind yep. of stuff. But that's why I really like tapped you to come join us today was to really to talk about that aspect of it. And I think you, you have a very interesting view because you're coming from consumer into B&B and now you're going through like this, this growth of your engineering team and, and you know, sort of trying to deploy that same methodology into these bigger teams. I think the question in the middle there, although it might come off kind of broad, is like, the way Brian says it is, uh, there are people who have used project management software, and they all don't understand how the people who haven't can live without it. <laughs> like, yep. why? What did we crack with the idea of, hey, you can go to ClickUp every day, you can go to Asana, whatever, every day, and manage all your stuff and not have to be stressed in the same way that you have historically been? Like, what's, yeah. what's the change there? Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know how I would live without it for a lot of my job. And to be clear, though, there there's a, a ton of my work that doesn't fall into you know issue tracking software, if you will. But I try to decrease that bit over time and and track more and more of, of what I'm what I'm doing. But I think it, to, when I started out in product, right, I had all of these ideas, and I'm just like, oh, this is what product is. You have an idea, and then great, this is how we're going to improve this thing. But ideas shouldn't even come from the product person all the time, or even most of the time. They should come from the customer or the company or salespeople, et cetera. And the product, you know, you got to figure out which of these are are worth doing. And then most more importantly, how do we get them done, sequence them, turn them from just a vague sentence or two to actual requirements and, and, and get them done. And over tens of years, there's been the scrum process has, has been um, defined and, and adopted by engineering teams. 
And it's just obvious that you need to, to track things and break them down and assign them and have these views in order to, to have a, a good velocity and get things done and have visibility through it. And it's been very interesting to see that methodology start to creep outside of pure engineering projects into other organizations. Another very interesting piece of that is traditionally the planning process was kind of a mess and there's not great tools for that. And then you get to the engineering world and that's where it turns into something that's actually standardized in in JIRA and there's tickets, et cetera. But what we're really trying to do is even for expand the tool usage and how we are actually tracking and and, and logging things outside of the pure engineering process out into the before that. It's like, okay, we have an idea. Well, that should still go through a flow and we should have um, non-engineering meetings with business to, to figure out if that's something worth doing and then get the requirements for it and then figure out if there's go-to-market stuff needed, and then put it to engineering. But we're starting to have all of that now in a separate app that's not Jira. Then it's pretty exciting to expand projects themselves outwards in terms of how you're tracking them, and then also the, the number of departments that are themselves using this type of, of, of software and methodology. So it's kind of two expansion dimensions. Right. Yeah, the, the way I say it is sort of just like, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Right. There are a lot of tasks and subtasks and things like that. And once you, as you scale a team, more of those subtasks are owned by a different person. Yep. And if you don't all have a source of truth as to the status of those tasks, then communication failure is rampant. Mm-hmm. Just a coordination failure, I should say, is rampant. Yep. Once you've experienced the fact that if you get the disciplines right and the and the and the settings right inside of bespoke software for this purpose, like stuff just stops falling through the cracks and it feels magical in this way that it's magical in a way that makes it almost hard to pitch to other people as the evangelists get in there and go, like, like I'll give you the marketing example. Like, like most it's happened with NetWise. I've had it happen in, in contracting roles and stuff like that. You come into a marketing department and you realize that the marketing department is the dump valve for everyone's ideas. Nobody expects any of them to actually get done. <laughs> And then the only ones that do get done are the ones that pick up an eternal evangelist or, or you know, somebody who's willing to continue to push that idea forward, which then creates this culture of like, you don't keep nagging. You don't get the thing that you asked marketing for. So it ends up creating this frustrating thing because I come in and go, no, we have methodology now where this is a machine. You put it in the top of the funnel and I will make content out the other side because yep. it's a machine, right? You told me the idea. You don't have to tell me again next week. I told you it's going to take nine months to complete. It'll be done in nine months. If it's slower than that, I'll tell you. <laughs> People don't believe that that's possible with marketing materials because they're yeah. not used to like functional project, you know, yeah. or they're not used to the cadence of modern project management possibility. So I've seen a little bit of where you've expanded kind of this um, issue tracking outside of engineering. And I think it's so cool. So for marketing specifically, right? And I think why you've been so successful is there's deliverables that you can identify before you put something in, in into place. Like you're like, at the end of the day, these are the things that will exist. And so you can work backwards from that and say, well, what are the steps? What are the tasks necessary to get to that place? So circling back to your question of like, you know, where's this going to go? How many departments are going to start adopting this thing? I think the next place is anywhere where you can define deliverables and actual, you know, uh, object, something that will get delivered at the end of the day is a right place for this kind of methodology to kind of take over. 
you want to make sure the tool is suiting the need of the team too. That like learning a tool just to learn a tool isn't productive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Which also happens a lot, which then makes it hard when you're the one with the new tool going, no, I promise this one's actually going to solve the problem. <laughs> they say it's going to solve. <laughs> the team's going, yeah, okay, so, great. I want to back up for a second. And you, you kind of glanced over talking about Agile and Scrum. You give us kind of like the, the top level of what those are for people that... Let's assume that everyone listening is a marketer and they're not familiar with engineering and product side management methodologies. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. So... <laughs> Agile is a framework that has a number of different kind of uh, methodologies underneath it. But basically, it's all about visibility and iteration and continuous improvement and as applied to, to software. There's a couple different flavors of it. One is Kanban, where it's just a, a never-ending list of things that you're a backlog and you kind of move through them, which can be great for... If every task is, is, is relatively important and not a lot of dependencies, that can be um, good. We use what's called Scrum, where there's actually things called sprints. And you have a, a time box. Usually it's two weeks, could be three, four, whatever, where you say, okay, in the next couple of weeks, this is what we really want to achieve. Outline with the team. What are all the, the stories, if you will, the, the subtasks to, to get there? How hard is this going to be? Um, but the reason it's so interesting is and it really gives everybody a goal. But in you know a couple of weeks, this is what we are trying to achieve. Everybody to it beforehand. And you can look back at the end of that and say, did we accomplish what we were trying to or not? And then if you haven't, we actually change how we decide what goes in that next sprint. So it's really all about getting better and better at the process of how much can I take on in this next chunk and actually complete it. So that's a crappy short explanation of, uh, <laughs> of Agile and Scrum specifically, how we use them. Yeah, there's a bunch of there's like 12 principles of agile or something. It's a whole, it's, it's for sure a whole, a whole mood. And then the argument about like Scrum versus Kanban versus whatever is all like the specific tools. And I do have a couple of kind of interesting examples of how we've used them that I think are maybe non, not traditional. So one thing I always like to say is I love process more than anything, but I want the least, the, 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 <laughs> the smallest amount of process and red tape as possible. So I almost always start without software, right? When you're get, getting into something and how, do, how does it currently work? Don't just try to slam something in place. Let it organically happen, right? So that's just something I want to put out there right now. You shouldn't just go try to do this everywhere all at once. That, that, that's just not going to work. But one really, I think, cool example for NetWise of a kind of a scrum but adapted to business was customer deliveries, right? So we have our main deliverable is files. And the process of going from a customer saying, this is what I want to the very detailed, I want it to be a pipe separated versus kava separated in these fields and delivered to this FTP and here's the credentials, blah, 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 blah. You know, we were doing that all in emails and it was completely messy and you couldn't go anywhere and see like what files were where. So we actually adopted Scrum for our file deliveries, which I think might be kind of not what people would normally even think of. And it's made it so much, our throughput is so much better, our visibility. So we, if... Two weeks in advance, we know. These are all the files we're trying to give to a customer. The engineers know what the requirements are. Look at the tickets and say, yes, I can create those. And we time box in that two-week thing. And sales knows when things can actually get worked on. They know not to toss us something to do tomorrow because we've implemented these processes. So it helps tremendously um, in a number of you know facets having it for our file deliveries. I think visibility is huge. Um, like you were saying, in terms of bandwidth and throughput and just general team well-being, you know, peace of mind to know that, hey, I've got this 
a forcing function and kind of a, a reduction of pressure to know that, look, this is, this is, as long as it gets done within the sprint, we're good, you know, and sales can say, okay, they're slammed. Uh, we'll save that for the next sprint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not going to get done. Right. So I mean, that, that reduces friction. You just introduced the practical application that most people probably, I feel like would, would resonate for them. And it's sort of context is like, there's incoming demands right inside of any collaborative structure. Yep. If you don't have a common language to explain why I can't do it right now, then you're constantly seem like you're just saying no. And it's no fun. It's not fun to be saying no all the time, but it's way easier to say, look, uh, we could maybe fit that in sprint eight and we're on sprint four. That gives you a sense, right? It's like, we, we just can't get to it till September. But it's not a it's not a no feeling answer, right? And so yeah. that's it's so, not covering so when, your ass. When you can yeah. get the whole team to understand the idea of how you organize getting work done in this time boxed way, then you, you then you have a language for how to say to sales if you're Absolutely. In marketing. Look, that's fine, but but when I spin up the template for that task, there are twenty five subtasks. They all have to get done. Yeah, I can start to get that in sprints around September. It'll be done by here if it proceeds on course. It probably won't pad that by 20%, you know, whatever, right? Like that's it. 100%. And one other thing that I just thought about that I think is kind of very useful for kind of these agile methodologies, specifically Scrum, is I don't know about you guys, but planning and executing are very different parts of my brain. And if I have to go back and forth between them multiple times in a day, there's going to be. 30 minutes between those where I have to be like, okay, now I actually have to ex- execute. Oh no, now I have to plan. I have to get all these things into my head and load them up before I can do that. This framework really helps you separate that. It's You're like, okay, these days of the week are these meetings. I am planning. I am not executing. I am thinking about the future. And then this time I am doing things. I am executing. I am getting it done. And having those separate is for me... Personally, as someone with a lot of ADHD, is I could not do my job without it. So, just wanted to throw that one out there. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm I'm like throwing yeah, I'm Mark's, throwing emoji Mark's hands up there here, doing a little dance because <laughs> this is that is that is, uh, that is my life. Is yep. <laughs> is like trying to bounce between the strategic and the execution is just it's gotten so maybe it's because I'm getting old. I don't know. It's just it's to bifurcate those two is just so necessary. I like to think I'm pretty good at it, but I've realized that like it's only between those two things. Like if you throw in a third context that I have to switch between, they all fall apart and I'm completely exhausted by the end of the day. So like if there's a plumber at the house, <laughs> everything's ruined. Yeah. <laughs> if I don't then segment and go, okay, it's either planning or execution today because also plumber. Yep. <laughs> yep. So so the the interesting thing that's come up in other conversations, particularly with occasional co-host Brian Jones, uh, when we talk about this stuff, is the when you're trying... I guess maybe the thing to say first is the nature of a global team using modern tools, you, you end up with some sort of effort to build asynchronous communication. And it goes to the visibility and transparency you were talking about, right? Yep. Uh, the notes need to be typed up because there might be people on the opposite side of the globe from you that need to get caught up on them before they can do their task. Yep. And so software or structures for how you leave that in a place is really important. But then the other part, and I'm kind of curious your experience with this over the years and then also expanding. Then there's the part where there's aspects of it that, that you might have a voice in the back of your mind that goes, okay, 
we don't have to do this in a meeting if everyone just gets the discipline down of updating this thing. Mm-hmm. And then it never happens and you're frustrated because you're like, why can't you just wake up every day and update the thing? And it's like, well, because that's not how people work. So there's an interesting aspect where you still have to have meetings where you might not even talk. You know, sometimes they call them silent meetings where it's literally like we all get in one place and then we go through all the steps. And if there's questions after that, then we field them. If there aren't, we can all just leave and say, hey, good job, everybody. But that communal aspect of being there and going, okay, everybody look at the backlog now. Okay, only look at the tasks assigned to you. Okay, move anything that's in progress in progress. Anything that's to do, you're still going to get to. Anything you're not going to get to, move it to the backlog for next sprint. And it's like, that's, that's the thing. I've been trying to dance around the most is like trying to find that line of, okay, how much do those meetings feel like babysitting versus they're just necessary because humans go to human and, 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 yep. you well, know. One thing specifically about like orthodox scrum, as we've been calling it, that, that I love is meetings. They're not called, there are events, right? So for scrum specifically, you've got there's four or five specific types of events. You've got your standup. That's just the engineers and the scrum master talking quickly each day about what's going on. What are your blockers? What are you working on? You got your refinement session where the whole purpose of it is to go through um, the next things in the backlog and make sure they are dialed and ready for the engineers to to work on and, and move them around if you need to. And then when a sprint's done, you have this amazing, gorgeous meeting that's my favorite thing in the world called a demo where all the stakeholders are there with the engineers and you, here's what we did. And then, and here's what we're going to do. Do you guys have any feedback? Should we course correct it at all? And then you've got your actual sprint planning where it's just the engineering team, the PO again, and you, what are we going to take on this next, next one, right? So Scrum makes meetings matter. You don't have a meeting that doesn't have a purpose and you, you get shit done and you have as little meetings as possible to let the engineers do their thing, right? Every other type of meeting I have is the exact opposite for the most part. Most people are terrible at, at meetings. There's maybe an agenda. Half the time, I'm not sure why I'm 100% there. There's duplication of meetings and like what you're trying to do across them. And that's, again, where this process stuff can, I think, probably help where you start adopting some of these other processes. And instead of just a random meetings, you actually have meetings with a very, very specific focus that actually help versus just bloat things. <laughs> <laughs> and a good PMO helps too. Yeah. It's, it's easy to fall into meetings, dis- uh, meetings disguised as productivity. Basically, it's it's kind of how I'd say it, right? Like, oh, I'm so busy. Are you really busy or is your calendar just full? Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. Uh, I think uh, we we may have stumbled on the title of the episode too, Making Meetings (laughs) Matter. Yeah. (laughs) Making Meeting Matter. There you go. Alliteration. Okay. So so I want to talk a little bit about how we do that differently for marketing. But first, this is more in the weeds of the project management stuff. Talk about the difference between sort of like asks and stories and epics and and that kind of way of classifying like the i guess the priority or the scale of any given yeah you know piece you're moving around inside the system it is super fuzzy and there's no right answer that's for sure but what we have landed on which i like is we have um and this is where i wanted to circle back to the expansion of this kind of process outside of purely engineering to actually the road mapping scoping part of it. So what we try to 
an epic is a collection of user stories in Jira, right? It's a bigger piece of work. It might not be as big as a release, which could be a bunch of projects that are all dependent that you release at once. But in general, we we work on the epic level, which is it's real functionality that once once released, you know, does something, but not not super super huge. But it's you know more than one person, more than one task involved in it, right? That is usually what we are trying to on the the product and business side come up with those and prioritize those kind of bigger bigger things, right? And we do this in this system called product board. And then once we go from this an idea to an actual candidate to planning, right? We're we're doing more and more scoping and refinement and resource allocation and stuff at, at, at each step there, um, which is incredibly useful before it actually even gets into Jira and into the you know engineering flow. So that's how we've done it. We the business only has to care about kind of that higher level project level stuff. And then from there, um, when it gets into the engineering, we break it down further into what you're, you know, the stories and the subtasks, etc. So the engineers can actually distribute the work and, and complete it. And it's a really important thing to define for yourself as a team, what level do we want to roadmap at? And what level do we want to assign things to engineers at? And how do those kind of play together? And what's the integration across your system? So you can actually track a project through the different softwares that you're, you know, software that you're using. So I, you know, I can get more in depth on exactly how we use stories and subtests and stuff because there's there is a lot there, but that's in general the kind of um, the level that we're we're thinking about. I will say anecdotally, it's just it's interesting to hear. I'm I'm thinking about the the, the term stories was initially uh, confusing to me in my first job where I was interfacing directly with you know the PO and uh, VP of product and a product team because as a marketer we think about storytelling in a very different way. You know, I think about it as like an, an avatar, you know, who's, you know, when I heard user story uh, the first time, it was like, had to kind of rejigger my thinking into more of an engineering mindset. And I'm not an engineer. Um, I'm an English major who's, who's a, a marketer and uh, kind of a, a moonlight HTML guy. But so I understand what's going on. But um, that was, if you could break down a little bit more, you know, yeah. how, how you, how you define story in an agile context. I might be a little bit non-traditional here too, because I, I do not love the story idea, but it came about basically as a a user story. Traditionally, you frame it in as a X, I want Y. So you don't have to know anything about engineering or code to do that, right? So let's say I'm a salesperson. I'm like, as a salesperson, I want a PDF report of an audience that I'm going to sell that has this these cool charts in it, right? So you can frame it in that way that um, it makes sense in English, and then but at, you're not going to give that to an engineer because they're like, okay, well, what does that mean? So traditionally, what you do is you have this user story, which is this kind of nebulous thing. It's 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 real, but it's not something you can hand to an engineer. And then you get with your engineers and say, okay, I'm not going to assign this story to you, but approximately how hard do you think that's going to be for all you guys to to do everything in here? And now let's create subtasks that are actually like engineering speak, like create this. You know this database. Create the API connection to do this and this and this and this. So it's a it's a way for you to have a smaller set of stories on your board that have English names that make sense, and then underneath them the appropriate level of technical detail and subtasks to actually complete that story. So a desired outcome and then a recipe of of actions. Right there, cool. you go. There you go. I like it. Yeah, and then you know just calling it a story frames it. It. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's the the problem across the board of like, there's always going to be lexicon difficulties, especially across departments and stuff. 
So we never call them stories because it's just kind of it's it gets morphed into another thing for marketing. Where, uh, like for example, the the thing I sort of teased before, we don't do demo meetings in the same way because it's not like there's stuff to show off. I mean, we kind of do if we have a longer project like a like a research report or something that's going to take a long time. But instead, marketing teams have like editorial review type meetings. So we have a weekly... Our sprints are two weeks. But we have a weekly meeting that's an hour of look at the analytics for the posts that went out last week. uh, Look at the content for all the posts that went out last week. the, The blog, you know, the podcast episodes, whatever. Largely just to force a team effort around incremental improvement of all of those things. So that's one of those things where it's it's it it you know it's less a demo because the demo is we just consume the media that we you know we we publish the stuff it's public once once we're finished and so demo is yeah go read the blog and then we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah, there's an element of is so, it working? You know, we look at the metrics to go right. Okay, right. who shared it? What community did this go to? Are there learnings that we can? take and implement in the future for activation of, of similar pieces of content or similar ad campaigns. But then it ladders up into the sort of the epics thing. And so the stories, like if they were going to play traditionally, it would be more like, you know, anyone searching for information about data should be able to find it on our website. That's just a forever project because we're building an encyclopedia. Yep. So that story kind of never gets completed. Yeah, that's why you break shit down so you can, right? So I think, I think maybe like an, an epic for you guys could be create an FAQ section on the website. And then some of the stories could be like, I would like to know about the privacy implications of the data that you collect, right? And right. things like that. We would yeah. actually. And so for us, the stories look a lot more like topics, usually yeah. Yeah. Um, questions that people have, you know, that we can answer via the marketing products or, or whatever. And then it gets weird at the top. Because then you start trying to align it with all the other stuff that's that's happening, right? And it and it eventually ladders up to three main goals at the top, right? Which are drive revenue here, drive revenue here, and drive revenue here, or you know whatever, right? Drive traffic here, drive revenue here, get user feedback for about the product over here, and then those all turn into their own versions of how we build, you know, these machines. Which maybe is an interesting place to start to wrap up. But like we talked a lot about internal stakeholders and ideas coming into the machine and how you turn them into product or into content or whatever. Talk a little bit about the user guided part of that, that, that product. On, on the marketing side, we spend a lot of time paying attention to analytics to see how our, our content is doing, how our ads are performing, blah, blah, blah. Like That's our feedback cycle. You guys have a lot of analytics on what's actually happening inside the product. But you also go and ask the users how it's going. Right, which is a thing that's a little different from marketing. Oh yeah, but I'm always fascinated about how that feedback loop cycles back into the sprints, and how you can know that, like, hey, here's a system by which we are surfacing the best features that the users want, and know that they will get built in on a general cadence. And if you want to tap in faster, hire more people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. User feedback stuff is that could be a whole series of of podcasts for sure. It's as a product person, you want to get as close as you can to the people that are actually consuming or using whatever it is that you're creating, because that's where you're, you know, you're creating it for either internal or ex- external users, right? When I was at Wine.com, right, it was very interesting. We had 
people hitting a website and we wanted them to buy stuff. So it's a, it's pretty easy to set up your conversion funnel and you know the the KPIs you're looking for. You know, you want your AOV to be higher and you want the conversion and once they get into cart to be higher between steps, blah, blah, blah. And then in terms of new things that people want, right? You can, well, and so any issues with that, you can kind of tell them to, to chat you or whatever. But the more interesting thing was for for new things that weren't on the website, um, we would actually, we had a, a group of people who um, I could email at any time and send a poll to, to, to ask them about whether um, they would want a new new feature or not. And then we would actually go to people's houses with you know a fake little paper sheets that replicated going through um, something we were thinking about building and just try to be very undirected and be like, pretend you're trying to do X. Show me how you would do it with what I'm presenting to you and just try to see how they're working through it if they're fumbling through anything that you thought was obvious, right? So, but it, so if there's a user interface or data or whoever your customer is, how you're going to go get that feedback is so different. So when I moved over to, to NetWise, at the beginning, it was, we send flat files to customers that then combine them with other files and then create their own product that then gets sold to other customers that we never hear from. So the closest we can get to the customer is an aggregator and asking them, do you think what we're doing is okay? And, and trying to ask them, what are your end customers demanding that we can then build into our product? Because we couldn't actually talk to the customers, right? And, and now it's a little different. We actually can talk to some of our customers that are getting data files and we have the platform now so we can um, see usage there. So it's very different depending on what you do <laughs> and who your customers are. That's you know so hot right now. In a sense, like doesn't that eventually just boil down to user-led growth if you're doing it right? Yes, but gosh, think about us though. We're um, it's so complicated the number of things that Ben and Bradstreet sells, and the number of things that are created that are purely for internal usage, etc. Right. So it's um, back at, before we got acquired, right? We were kind of trying to go there and say we're going to be a SaaS company. We're going to sell access to this platform, and I think that was going to be the plan. Like we'd be a product-led company that's really users telling us, you know, what are we having the right product market fit? What do we need to do to grow? Um, and now it's a lot more complex when you're relying on salespeople selling your products for you. There's a bunch of products. You make some of them. Other teams make others of them. It's, um, it's a whole different <laughs> different. You're not situation. sure if they all work in conjunction or work against yeah. each other, try to do the like, same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So my last question, I guess, that's, that's maybe... Trying to kick me out? Am I doing this it's, poorly? It's vague. No, you're great. I'm just trying to honor your calendar. We're, we got eight minutes left to land the plane. Uh, okay, so how many people were at Wine.com when you started? Oh gosh, I think like 25 or so, and there's probably like 100 when I left. So okay, I'm not really familiar with the influencer arc of Gary V. Mm -hmm. Did you see that coming? Uh, well. <laughs> Depends on what you mean I saw that coming. I saw that he was a, a squeaky, annoying wheel and certain people liked him. But <laughs> luckily, I didn't have to uh, <laughs> do much with him. <laughs> Works for some subset. He's, he's one of those sure. old school, you got you to gotta work 27 hours a day and hustle, 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 hustle. I, I am the opposite. I want to have a bunch of engineers and product people working with me that get shit done during the day and then go hiking or hang out with their family after work. So Gary V was never my, my paradigm of for sure to, to emulate there. <laughs> it's, it's definitely, I mean, he's an influencer for a reason. It yeah. works. There's, he's yep. got his people to be sure. Yep. Uh, 
I rode that that mentality into burnout at least yeah, exactly. twice. That's it. That though, I learned my lesson. I can't yep. do it. I can't do it physically anymore. My body hurts too much for those kind right. of hours. <laughs> it's like I, I'd rather take little chips, little little <laughs> coins of gold, you know, day by day by day, than than searching for a big pot of gold at the end of some mythical rainbow that all the yep. you know well hard work. And it's it seems like the influencer life is 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 trying to do both. But again, you know, he's got he's got a thing. It's like <laughs> like yeah, it's easy and it's great, and I can just pop it off. But also, it's a lot of hard work. Well, to tie it back to the rest of the conversation, like I think that mentality and the and the like reptile part of your brain that it scratches mm-hmm. goes back to like before we had digital tools for how to achieve the things that we want to achieve at a reasoned, sustainable pace and still have the outcome be great. Like I openly admit that part of my success in business across the board has been bringing more efficient project management mm-hmm. everywhere that I go. And they go, how could you possibly do four podcasts a week? And I'm like, it's actually pretty easy if you just sort of build out the machine and then you all stick to your schedules and you book far enough out. Yep. The answer is, this won't air for nine weeks, even yep. though we're recording it right now. The point is to have the evergreen conversation so it doesn't matter. And then the yep. machine will run and eventually it'll get published. <laughs> and I don't I, have to you know have what? an when- answer. I think one very interesting thing is the um, these type of processes and, and adopting tools and doing doing things in in more efficient ways. Right for engineering, it started there because it needs to. They're your most expensive resources, and you don't want them thinking about things other than than coding. And you need visibility in what they're they're doing and what they're doing is actually not. They don't usually decide that. It's like other people decide that. So you, it needed to exist, but you are expanding the that kind of workflow beyond that to where it doesn't necessarily need to exist, but by adopting it, you're actually giving yourself a competitive advantage, right? You can create more content. You can measure things better. You can have a smaller team and get as much or more done, right? So I think that's a pretty cool takeaway from this is taking what engineers need to do or what product engineering needs to do and and deciding to adopt that in other places to actually give yourself an advantage. That's like the moral of this whole podcast. Yeah. I mean, the whole, not I just, just this episode, the, end, I the whole that enterprise. We can shut it down. <laughs> Season yeah. two is over. <laughs> no, but, but really, Cam, thanks for coming on to do this. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, where, should people, where should people look you up? They want to see your rocks on Instagram oh, or TikTok. Why the <laughs> underscore rock hound if you want some of that um, agate and petrified wood content, you know? So I it's moved so from the good. Bay Area where I could go hike in the redwoods and swim in the ocean to the high desert of Boise, Idaho. And it was kind of a, a tough transition until I discovered the desert has its, uh, you know, some amazing things too. So... I mean, the deserts all used to be oceans. Yeah, so that's there's true. a lot of cool stuff left behind. So <laughs> or lakes is the, here. <laughs> well, and thank you to our listeners for joining us for another another jam in the data basement. Yeah, thanks everybody. Listen, share, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Data Driven Marketer. I'm Adam. I'm Mark. I'm Cam. Take it easy, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Data-Driven Marketer. Our show is produced by Jessica Jacobson and Dan Salsius. This episode was edited by Steve Kosh. The Data-Driven Marketer is sponsored by NetWise, a Dun & Bradstreet company. 
Any views or opinions expressed in this episode do not represent the views or opinions of NetWise or Dun & Bradstreet. <laughs>